and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. If you're unfamiliar with me and the podcast, during the day, I work as an executive coach where I work with all kinds of different people in the corporate world and I coach them one-on-one and I also do keynotes and create experiences and facilitate discussions around mindset, around leadership, around culture and I love what I do in the corporate world and I got my start working in sports psychology as a mental performance coach where I've spent the last decade working with elite athletes and sports teams, once again, helping them with their mindset, with leadership and with culture. So I love what I do for a living and I fired up this podcast to learn and not only to learn but to share what I've learned along my journey and then to learn from these other people these intentional performers about how they set their mind and how they go about their journey and how they go about setting their mind for performance in both leadership and to actually execute so I love what I do for a living and this podcast has been quite a labor of love for me. So excited to have you with us. And I also came out with a book in October. It's called Shift Your Mind. It's available on Amazon if you want to purchase the hard book. We also have it available on Kindle if you like the ebook. And lastly, we have it on Audible if you like to listen to your books. So for those of you that have already purchased the book, can't tell you how grateful I am to have your support. And the feedback that I'm getting has just been overwhelming. So thanks to all of you who continue to read the book. And hopefully you get a lot out of it if you listen to these conversations in the past, you will often hear me reference the theory and the thesis of the book Shift Your Mind, which is that your mindset for preparation actually should be different than your mindset for performance. So I just wanted to let you know about that book. And once again, thanks to all of you who have supported it up until now. Now to today's guest. Ryan Hawk is a keynote speaker, an author, an advisor, and he's the host of just an incredible podcast called The The Learning Leader Show. It's a podcast with millions of listeners in more than 150 countries. He's just created an amazing platform, and he has incredible guests on the podcast. He is also the author of Welcome to Management, How to Grow from Top Performer to Excellent Leader, which was published last year in 2020. He's a lifelong student of leadership. He rose to roles as a professional quarterback and VP of sales in a multi-billion dollar company. Currently as head of 
Brixie and Myers Leadership Advisory Practice, Ryan speaks regularly at Fortune 500 companies, works with teams and players in the NFL, NBA, and NCAA, and he facilitates these leadership circles that offer structured guidance and collaborative feedback to new and experienced leaders. So you can tell by Ryan's bio and my background that we had plenty to talk about in this conversation. Ryan is absolutely, he calls himself a learning machine, and I think that's going to come across in this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ryan Hawk. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Man, I've enjoyed getting to know you in 2020 and 2021. You're doing some really cool stuff. I loved your book. Uh, it's called Welcome to Management, How to Grow from Top Performer to Excellent Leader. And I figured we could start there because that is something that I talk about almost weekly. I don't want to say daily, but weekly. There is this challenge that occurs for people that are great at executing. And then when they're in a management position, they find that muscle to be different. So as you did research for your book and, and really went deep into that subject, I'd love to learn what were some of the highlights that you found that relate to making that transition from high performer to excellent manager slash leader, coach, whatever you want to call it. Well, it also stems from my personal experience, Brian. And first of all, uh, certainly thanks for having me. But the, um, you know, I, I was one of those guys who, when I got into the business world, uh, got a job in sales because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But, 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 you know, I, I was taken off of the football field because I wasn't good enough to make a professional team anymore. And you find yourself in a cubicle, uh, pounding the phones, making 60, 70, 80 dials a day. And eventually, after figuring some things out and doing relatively well after a couple of years, I find myself in the room to, 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 to try to get promoted, to, to manage my own team. And the inter interesting thing about that is you, you get the opportunity to interview for that management job because of your performance as an individual contributor. And yet, once you potentially get that job, which I did, I found that virtually none of the skill I had developed as a top performing individual contributor had anything to do with running a team. I mean, I was pretty good when it came to demoing the product or uh, uh, helping with objections and sharing what I said. But as far as the act of managing and leading and coaching, I hadn't really done any of that in the business world. And so I, I really tried to cover a topic that I struggled with the most in my personal and professional life. And then couple that with the fact that I had been recording and speaking with, with some of the world's most effective leaders for years on my podcast. And, and, and that combined, I thought, helped me put, put the book together. And, and I, I specifically used the word management in the title because it's, 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 a, it's actually a bad word. A lot of people don't like management. They love leadership. They love inspiring, but they don't, they don't necessarily love the act of managing something or being managed, certainly. So um, my hope is, to, is to, to make that not a bad word and to help prepare people to not make the same mistakes that I made. So I, my hope is that when somebody gets promoted, they get a handshake and a pat on the back and a congratulations and then handed this book to say this could be a playbook or a manual for you to, to, to not make mistakes that most first-time managers make. We'll dive into... The, the some of the takeaways, but you actually said something that I want to 
pull on a little bit, which is management is a bad word. I also think of sales as being often a bad word. Yeah. So I'd love to hear from you. What makes someone great at sales? What makes someone a great manager? And why are those considered bad words? Well, sales is, is a more obvious one and management is too for a bit. So we can all picture a really bad selling engagement. So whether it's uh, buying a car or uh, coming across somebody, even knocking on your door, cold calling you at six o'clock at night when you're trying to have dinner with your family and you think of that as sales. And so it, it, it gets a bad word because people have had bad experiences with, with salespeople. Um, whereas, uh, I, I'm born into a family of a sales professional. My dad has, has led sales teams his entire career and, and, and retired as an SVP of sales, leading over a thousand people. He's written books about selling. So it's really in my, uh, DNA. It's a part of what I do. Um, the, the, the simple fact is nothing in the world would happen, happen without sales professionals. If you look at your office right now, that microphone, the thing holding your microphone, the headphones you're wearing, the books behind you, everything in your office has been sold. Somebody has created it and somebody has sold it. Everything in, in the world really is, is sold. Um, the world needs professional uh, sales professionals in order to not have our economy come to a grinding halt. The, what I learned, because uh, I had the same feeling about sales when I went into it, what I learned though is when done right, sales is an extremely noble profession because ultimately what you're trying to do is you understand where a per person's current state is, you figure out where their desired state is, and this is the gap, right? The gap between where they are and where they want to be, and an excellent sales professional helps you bridge that gap. And also, they're not the type of uh, an excellent one will not sell you something you don't need. They will understand your issues, your problems. And the, and the great sales professionals actually believe that they have a responsibility to share with the prospect or the person they're trying to help in order to help them get to their desired state. And so that's how I viewed it. That's why for me, it would be really challenging to sell something that I didn't truly believe in. Now, I guess if I had to do it to put money on the table, I would, I would try to figure it out, but I don't think I would be very good at it. To me, I mean, think about what you're doing for, for your podcast, Brian, you have to sell a person to come on your show. You have to sell a person to listen to the show. They might not have to give you any money, but you're still selling yourself. You're selling ideas. You're selling something that is even more valuable than money, and that is their time. So sales is a part of your life every day. I mean, Dan, Dan Pink, who I know we both know from talking to him and, and doing and blurbing the covers of our books, he he wrote to sell this human. I mean, basically saying that everything you do has a sales component. If you think you don't have a sales job just because you don't have a quota, that's wrong. You're selling yourself. You're selling your ideas. You're selling uh, a, a way for you to to propel and, and progress it in your career. All of that is sales. So let's stay on this thread because it's really interesting as we think about sales and management. It's, it's fascinating. You said sales is about helping someone get from where they are to where they want to go. And I've been told by a lot of my clients that I'm good at sales. And in the beginning, I was like, come on. And then they, they would sort of unpack what they meant by that. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm good at sales. That works for me. Because basically what they would say is I would listen to what they're looking for. And then I'd say, all right, well, here's my offering. And I believe in it. Um, and I'd say, I'd love the opportunity to work with you. 
And that was sort of it. And I was honest and true. And when I didn't, I also said that I said, eh, you know, timing might not be right, or let's do it then, or let's do this or whatever it might be. But when you say to help people get from where they are to where they want to go, and that's sales, the definition of what a coach is, is the same thing. The origins of the word coach, you know, comes from a town in Hungary called coaches. And that's where the carriage or the horse and buggy or the coach, that's where it was invented. Hmm. And that word coach is all about a horse and buggy or a, a stagecoach. And the stagecoach's job was to transport people from where they are to where they wanted to go. So that word coach would evolve into coaches as uh, tutors in Oxford and coaches when it comes to strength coaches. They're all helping people get from where they are to where they want to go. And what's fascinating to me is where is this disconnect when someone goes from sales and helping a client get from where they want to, where they are to where they want to go. And then management where you're trying to help your people get from where they are to where they want to go. Where did you struggle or where do people struggle? Because to me, they're, they're both similar. They're both in service to helping people get from where they are to where they want to go. Well, it would take forever the rest of the time. If we're going to talk about where I struggled, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on a few of them. Um, you don't really know what a job is like until it's yours to do. Um, it's just like the, the, the Roosevelt man in the arena quote is so apropos when it comes to leading and managing a team, because you think you have an idea because you're watching from the stands, but when you're actually in the arena doing it, it's completely different. This is why I, I, I have a lot of, um, I, I ask people to hold off on necessarily criticizing somebody like the CEO or above you when you're at a company, because it's so easy to criticize when you're, when, when you're watching from the cheap seats, as opposed to doing it, because we don't know what all they are dealing with. They still may be a problem, but it, it's still, it's hard to make that criticism. I'd say for me, I, I wanted to hire a team. So when I got hired, I had 13 people and four openings on my team. I wanted to hire 17 people that were exactly like me. That's all I wanted. I had absolutely no idea what I was when it comes to uh, diversity and uh, understanding the value of having differences on a team. Um, I looked for clones of me and I struggled to find that. And I also struggled to understand perspective of somebody else. I didn't get it if they had a different method or a style or approach to me. I didn't get it if they weren't like a pure grinder. That's kind of what I had to be as an athlete and what I had to be as a sales professional. Basically, I was I was, I was, was more into myself uh, than I was into others. And when you become a leader of a team, it it's, it's not about you at all. It's completely about the people on your team. And I had it completely backwards, um, very quick to judge uh, critical of others and, and just not, not effective. What happened to me though, is I got insanely lucky and in that the first three people I hired were, were incredible at the job and great teammates. So they helped build a culture that I really didn't have anything to do with. I just lucked out into having that. The good thing is I was able to learn as I went and learn from some of the people that I was lucky to hire that, oh, you know, a number of aha moments about building culture and camaraderie and team and sharing and, and, and shifting from a insanely competitive environment to one of cooperation, of one of wanting the team to succeed. As an individual contributor, 
I didn't mentor anybody. I didn't share what I learned with anybody else. I hoarded all of that because I wanted to win. I wanted to be at the top of the stack rankings. And it took me some time to unlearn that style or in that approach. Um, and fortunately it happened and our team was able to do well. It did take me some time though. And, and so I would say those are a few of the mistakes I made when I made that first leap. Man, there's a couple of thoughts. I, one of the things you do a great job of on your podcast is connect previous episodes to the episode you're recording. And so we had a guy named Scott O'Neill, who is the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. And we're certainly going to talk about sports in this conversation as well. But I said something when I was interviewing Scott, I said, what do you look for? What, what's, how do you, what do you look for, for people to fit in, in your organization? And he quickly corrected me and said, I don't look for fit. I look for alignment and I look for alignment of values rather than fit of values uh, or fit of who they are. And I think the mistake a lot of people make to your point is they look for people that they like or that fit or are mirror images of themselves. And then they don't have any diversity of thought. Uh, we, we, before we started recording, talked about David Epstein and, and range and his great book. And he talks about having people with a multitude of experiences so that you don't have as many blind spots in your organization. And so that's something that I just want to bring back up for our conversation and this idea of sales being, all right, my job is to serve my customer. And that is really important. But at the end of the day, it's still about being self-serving. I don't necessarily have to play on a team. So I think of like a golfer or a singles tennis player as somebody who can be really focused on execution. And there's a lot of things that are in their control as a result of that. So they might love playing that sport compared to a basketball player or a football player or a soccer player who has to then figure out how they're going to make their teammates better. And, and so those dynamics are interesting to me because we've all seen athletes who are great at executing, but can't necessarily figure out a way to make their teammates better or, or help their culture improve. And I think it's the same thing when you think about sales and, and that transition to management, it's this shift that needs to occur to, no, you can't just execute. Now you need to find a way for all boats to rise with the tide. And, and how can you do that? And so I want to bring it back to you in this regard. As you, as you work with people and you work with companies, what do you see works with that transition? What do you see helps people transition from focusing on the client and on, them, on their own success and raising, you know, going to the top of the, the leaderboard or the sales board to transitioning to figuring out, okay, how do we get this team to function? And if you want to bring sports into it as well, I'd be curious to see if there's anything analogous for you there as well. But I'd love to know what actually helps that transition from great at executing, great at serving the customer to, to serving a, a bigger team. It's, it starts with the people that you recruit hire, train, and develop. Um, if you, there, there's a, the challenger sales book is a, is a, is a good book about, about the different styles of people. And, and one of, one of the types of people in that book is called the lone wolf. And if you hire a bunch of lone wolves, you, there's a chance you could have some short-term excellence, but I don't think it'll be sustainable or long-term. And so it's, it's thinking about people who, uh, like to collaborate, who are curious, who have an open mind, who want to work with others, who enjoy being a part of a team, who enjoy the the culture aspect of a place. And I'd, I'd say 
that was so critical was was finding those people who got genuine enjoyment out of helping a team win. So one of the things I did look for as I got more clear on the from a recruiting perspective of, was people who were a part of teams. Um, I particularly love people from the military. Um, I love people who played on teams. I love people who were captains of those teams who wanted to be leaders uh, because you don't get voted a captain of your team um, and unless you are the type of person that others want to follow, that, that you care about uh, working hard, uh, performing, um, being there for other people. And so I looked deeply. I think it first starts with the who, as Jim Collins would say, if you get the who right, it, 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 it can solve a lot of the potential problems that could arise later on. And so first and foremost, that, that that's what I would focus on the most is who do you have on your team? Um, hopefully, you, you, if, if, if you inherit a team, you're not having to go in there and turn it upside down and make a lot of changes. I think great, great leaders can find a way to, to work with the team that they inherit. But first and foremost, I would think who before what or why or anything else that you're doing. Um, and if you get that part right, uh, as my dad told me early on, you'll become rich and famous within this industry if you get that right. And if you get it wrong, you'll be poor and unemployed. Your call, man. But but take it serious and 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 hold your standards high and do it right. But 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 get very clear on what you're looking for and how you're going to identify that in people. So that's the second time you've mentioned dad. And so I want to go a little bit into into your family. And here's some interesting nuggets that you may not be aware of. We are both one of three boys. Um, I believe you're a middle child, correct? Yes. So we both have middle child syndrome, and which we can talk about on this. It's an undiagnosed disease that that occurs <laughs> sometimes. Um, there is a difference. Our dads are both very successful from uh, the outside looking in. I think my dad is very successful from the inside looking out as well. But um, society would would judge them to be successful. I think they both play a lot of golf. It sounds like um, <laughs> maybe we can get them connected and and, and see what happens. Um, his his my dad's sons have not picked up my dad's golf prowess, but maybe one day we can we can get there. Your family is different though from an athletic standpoint. Um, you and your brother both played division one football. Um, your brother went on to play in the NFL. Um, you played professionally as well. We did not, we maxed out in, I think third grade, we have arguments <laughs> all the time as who is the best athlete amongst the three of us, but we, uh, we didn't, we don't, we do not have the Hawk athleticism that I think <laughs> you all have. Um, but I wanted to get a sense from you because I've also heard you talk about your older brother. You are very open, um, every hundred episode, uh, and you've done, I think 400 now. So you've, you've had a bunch of these conversations with your brother and your dad talking about how you see the world. I'd love to get a sense of your upbringing, um, and, and what it was like in the Hawk house. And I know your mom also had a big influence on you as well. Um, so can we get a sense of what life was like for you as a kid? Um, and maybe what values were instilled in you and your brothers? Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 insanely lucky um it sounds like like you are too brian when it comes to seeing the model for love for a relationship for treating others with, with respect i mean i i still vividly remember this being a regular occurrence where somebody would call my dad on our house phone right before cell phones on our house phone and uh there would be someone maybe even crying on the other end and it'd be a guy and my dad would get on the phone and he most of the time he would listen um, and he would offer a few, a few 
wise words of wisdom to help. And, and, and then he would usually close by saying, yeah, I'll, 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 I'm going to do what I can to help. And, and I would say, what was that all about? And, it, and he would say, oh, you know, um, so-and-so is just going through some stuff and uh, I'm just going to try to help him out. And, and it was very nonchalant, like not a big deal. This is just what we do. He didn't talk about it and brag about it. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he wouldn't even talk much, even if we asked him about it. And it just be kind of came ingrained in us that that's what people do. That's what you should do is when somebody needs you, you help them and you proactively look to, to do what you can for them. And I think, um, so on top of my parents modeling for us three boys, what it's like to love your spouse and to be a loving father and mother, um, it's also, uh, it, they taught us how to love other people and try to help other people. And, 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 and I think that, that was, that was something we didn't really think about very much, but we think about it more now as we're husbands and we're dads, that that was critical and something that I, I try to do and, and certainly don't live up to. And then when it comes to sports and, you know, they, they always just w put us in a position to play, never talk to our coaches um, never complained, um, never said, you know, Ryan or AJ should play a different position or whatever it may be. Um, had a, had a, had a kind of a rule between my mom and my dad that they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about how good we were to anybody. Um, they wouldn't, they, at our games, they would cheer us harder for our teammates than they would for us. They would make sure they talked to, to our teammates and, and told them good job after games. And they would did do you, Did you ever resent that? Was there ever a time when you're 15 years old, 16 mm. years old, where you said, gosh, like, I'm the quarterback of this team. Like, why, why aren't they praising me? I, I don't think so. Uh, I, now I guess a good question. I guess I never thought of it. Um, I don't, I mean, privately they, they, they were, they were good for us. Um, just publicly, they, they were very careful. We all know those parents who, who, who love to walk around town and talk about how great their kids are. I mean, it seems like, cause we played sports that we hear it more than anybody. Like parents love to tell us how good their kids are. Um, and, and I've, I mean, the, the, the rule is not a hundred percent, but most of the time when a parent tells me how good their kid is, their kid's not very good. Um, and I, 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 at sports, which like, I don't care. I mean, it's fine. Most kids aren't going to get a college scholarship. That's fine. That's normal. Um, it, it, but then sometimes you see the parent who's just like, yeah, I try to support my kid and do the best I can. And you go watch their kid play and they're the best player on the team by far. So it's just weird how that works out. No, my parents were just really, they just said, Hey, just let, let the other parents talk about how good you guys are. Um, but we don't need to kind of be that way. And so there's, I think they just brought up, brought us up to be very humble. Um, and I think they're both more humble than, than, than I am. Um, certainly. <laughs> um, but I'm, but again, I'm trying, I think AJ has got a lot of that humility, like, like my, my mom and my dad have, um, and I'm, I'm trying to get, to get, to get more of that, but yeah, we just, they just brought us up to show what love's all about. They brought us up to show, um, how to help other people, how to be humble about your success on the, on the athletic fields and just how to support us. I mean, they drop us off at the practice, let us go play, we'd play and we come home. Um, no forcing us, no telling us you should do this. No, no, no. The, the only mention of a scholarship ever when we were younger was, listen, we have a, a small college fund for you guys. If you, if you get a scholarship, we'll give you the money. You know, the, the college fund is, um, is about enough money to cover about one year of college. Um, and so uh, AJ and I were, you know, we were motivated by that. That'd be cool. And, and, you know, that money actually went to part of the down payment on my first house because I got a scholarship and my parents gave me the money when I graduated college. So 
uh, but, but outside of that, there wasn't like this big goal that, that you guys have to play and, and, and earn a scholarship. And, and I think that's something we also try to do as parents. Like we want our kids to play sports. I think there's a lot of value in playing team sports, but, but there's no talk of like, you gotta, you, you gotta do these crazy things to get a scholarship. Like, like you see from time to time. So you live in Ohio. Now you grew yeah. up in Ohio and yeah. in the state of Ohio, there is a big time football program that everybody seems to follow nationally, but I, I'd imagine in Ohio, Ohio state is everything. Mm-hmm. You went to a different school in Ohio that I actually visited um, when I was looking at schools. And I remember really? going to Miami of Ohio and visiting a beautiful campus. I was going to say, it's hard to not go there if you visit, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. I grew up on the East coast uh, in right outside Washington, DC. I get to Miami of Ohio kids are playing with hockey sacks. They're, <laughs> they're kind of in khaki pants. Um, you know, there was a vibe that I felt. And I remember it's going a beautiful to beautiful campus though, with beautiful campus. Yeah, yeah. I go to the gym. They had a, a climbing wall and <laughs> a beautiful gym. Um, but I will tell you, we visited Miami of Ohio and then we went to Syracuse and as a sports nut, I walked into the carrier dome uh. and I looked at my dad, my mom started saying, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is how you're going to make your college decision. But walked in the carrier dome. I think I was, I was interested in Syracuse for a lot of other reasons as well. But um, I liked Miami of Ohio when we visited, I think we went to Outback Steakhouse for dinner, which is one of my favorites from my childhood. Um, But you get to Miami of Ohio as a quarterback and nothing against Miami of Ohio as a football program. And it's a good football program, but it's not Ohio state. There's, mm-hmm. you know, you're not grooming the next NFL quarterback or linebacker uh, in your brother's case, but you get there and there's an NFL quarterback there. Um, what was it like to be on campus with Ben Roethlisberger and compete against Ben Roethlisberger every day to, to play, to be a quarterback. And, and obviously you could play, you went on to play in the arena league and, um, but, but you have one of the all-time great quarterbacks um, competing against. So what was that experience like for you being at Miami of Ohio and competing against an NFL quarterback? Yeah, I mean, we, we went there at the same time. So we're the same age, same recruiting class. Um, so I committed and he committed about two weeks after me. I remember uh, I got all of the coaches who I had previously called and told them, you know, thank you for the scholarship offer, but I'm going to go to Miami. Uh, they all called me back and said, you, you know, you're, you're not going to beat this guy out. Uh, you should come here. You have a much better chance to play. And, and obviously as an 18 year old, pretty cocky and arrogant kid, you know, and I loved Miami. I, I said, you, you are so wrong. Just wait. Like I know he's, he's good, but, but wait. Um, and so I, I, what I would say though, is um, from the very first day of the first practice, I realized that this was going to be a battle, but it wasn't one that I was going to run away from. Um, I was willing to compete. Um, I like competing, uh, up to that point, I'd never not, uh, earn the starting job, uh, even as a ninth grader, um, on our varsity team. So I, you know, I had a lot of confidence, um, in, in myself and my, uh, ability and the simple fact is, and it was a, it's just an awesome message and an awesome lesson to learn in your formative years is that sometimes, you can do everything within your power and it's not enough. Um, sometimes there is someone who's just flat out more talented, have uh, built more skills. Um, are, they're just flat out better than you. They get better results. 
And I learned, you know, when I'm 19, 20 years old, after competing with Ben for two years, that um, I, the only way I was going to play quarterback at Miami is if he got hurt. And so to me, that just that that wasn't a way to live. I mean, my my what I wanted to do was to be a division one starting quarterback more than anything else. It was the priority. There was one priority and that was it. And so once he established himself in our second year is when he, he blew he blew up. Um, our first game was at Michigan and we lost, but he played well. Second game at Iowa, same thing. We lost, but he played really well. And I, I looked and, and that's when our coach, the late great Terry Hapner pulled us aside and said, we're not going to rotate you guys anymore because we were both playing. Uh, he's the guy, the only way you're playing is if he gets hurt. Um, and so at that point, once the competition was over, after two years of doing it literally every day in the weight room, film room, practice field, games, uh, that's when I elected to, to transfer to give myself a, a chance to compete again with other people um, for the starting job. And I, I ended up going to Ohio University and, and being able to play there for for a couple of years. You use the word compete a lot. How do yeah. you how do you define competition? How do you think about competing? What, what does that word mean to you? So in the in my in the football football days as a quarterback, the competition is 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 multifaceted. Um, it's with another person because when you, the quarterback world is black and white, there's a starter and there's a backup. Um, and that, so, so there's, a, there's a, there's a, uh, 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 I win, you lose, or, uh, I lose and you win and zero, zero, sum game. It's a zero sum game. And so in that world, that's that's the world that I lived in my whole life. Like I had to beat out guys to be the starter on all the teams I was on. And I was a returning starter in high school, which which you know you kind of earn the job early and keep it as long as you play well. But you still have to beat out other guys on a daily basis. If they think the other guy's better than you, he's going to play. Um, so I lost that competition. I went to OU, Ohio University, and it wasn't a, a pushover. There were two great players there that I still had to beat out to earn that job. The, the weird part about it, Brian, is when you get into the real world and you still have the mind of a quarterback thinking, I've got to beat everybody else out. Well, you could understand why I might hoard all the information, never mentor anybody, not talk, not talk to anybody else, not share any of my secrets that I had picked up along the way, because I still saw the world as being really black and white, being very zero sum. The, the, the problem with that mindset is that is the opposite of how the actual real world is. In order... For you to win, I don't have to lose. In fact, the odds of us, we were just doing this before we recorded, the odds of us doing well go up if we try to help each other. That's a fact. I mean, if we both try to, hey, I'll try to, let me try to help your show. You try to help mine. Let's try to help each other writing our books. We're, we're, our odds increase of us both doing better and doing well if we try to help each other. So you, in a way, I had to unlearn that 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 competition with another person or competition with others this zero sum game because in the real world that's not what it's like you read give and take by adam grant right givers are the ones who are performing at the highest levels for a sustained period of time more so than the person who lives in the black and white world and that took me years to figure out um and making a lot of mistakes and thinking the world was zero sum and now i'm at the other end of that spectrum and the only person that i compete with is my previous self 
Um, and that's the, that's truly the only person and only thing I think about is, am I better today than I was yesterday? Am I better this week than I was last week? Will I be better next year than I am this year? And that's the measurement. And I, in, in our world, Brian, we can actually listen to hear, am I improving as an interviewer, as a listener, as someone who gives, uh, useful answers. We can actually do that. We can measure ourselves to hear if we're getting better. We can film our keynote speeches. We can read our books. We can listen to our podcast. So in a way we have a chance, the opportunity to measure ourselves against our previous self. There was a line in your book that stuck with me from Phil Jones, who's really bright when it comes to sales. And I encourage people to follow Phil. He, he, he puts out a lot of content on LinkedIn. Um, so you can check him out there. Um, but it, he sort of referenced to you, would you rather be good, better, or your best? And or the best. Yeah. Or the best. And you say in the book, oh yeah, the best. And how most people say the best. And he sort of challenged you to focus on being better. And that's what I'm hearing from you now is this idea of growth mindset, get better, improve, uh, make that happen. And then there was another uh, podcast that you recorded that really resonated with me with Simon Sinek, who you know, I think a lot of people listening to this conversation are probably familiar with, uh, just another brilliant mind. Um, and Simon talked about the infinite game compared to a finite game. And as I'm hearing you talk about sports, and he referenced this in his conversation with you, uh, this idea that sports are finite, it's zero sum, you won or you lost, whereas business is more an infinite game. And I want to bring that idea and that concept and that framework back to what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation as we think about a salesperson compared to a manager. Is it possible that that salesperson also thinks of things in a very finite way and can be very successful in that way? Hey, I'm just going to be top of the leaderboard. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get sales, but I don't need to necessarily be a team player. I just need to bring in money to the company. Company's happy because I'm bringing in money. I'm doing my job. That's my job and do it. Whereas a manager has to think more about possibilities and less about necessarily just hit your numbers, hit your numbers. It's more about how do I develop people? How do I grow people? How do I help them fulfill their potential? And maybe that's more infinite. And so I'd love to riff with you on this idea of finite and maybe we can map sports. And I think about like the sports player is to the salesperson and the sports coach is to the manager. At least that's how I often am looking at it. Um, so I'd love to riff on that concept and just get your thoughts on it. Sure. And to hit on a couple of your points, starting with the Phil Jones comment. So the, the good, better, or the best is it, it usually will, will stop you in your tracks when you truly think about it, because there's a, there's a lot of leaders in the marketplace that will say, and I had a, a CEO like this at one point in my career where I worked, where they said, we're going to be number one by the end of the decade. Uh, number one in the marketplace. And I get, I get the goal. Like it's a noble goal. Uh, right? We're not number one now, but we want to be, so we're going to do everything. I, I, I get it. My question that is tough to answer is, and then what, then what? So instead of focusing on the result or the outcome, why not us focus on, on ourselves getting better from today, tomorrow. And the outcome typically as Bill Walsh would say, takes care of itself. The score takes care of itself is his book. A great one about that. Ba basically champions act like champions long before they're champions and the score or the result or the outcome takes care of itself. So instead of worrying about what the, the competition is doing in the marketplace, right, black and white world, we are focused on 
us getting incrementally better, right? The compound effect compounds on each other. And that's how we, the, the James Clear, right? The 1% better. We see this upward trajectory. By doing that, the score will probably take care of itself. Because so we're focusing on ourselves, on our actions, on our behaviors, on our rituals, on our routines, what we have in place in order to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And all of a sudden you look up and you see the scoreboard or whatever, whatever it is that's out there. And you're like, well, we won or we're winning. And it's not because we were focused on the scoreboard or focused on the result. We were focused on what we were doing every day. We were focusing on trying to get a little bit better every day. And then the result happens based on that. The same thing is true with a podcast or a book or whatever. You got to be focused on, like, as I know you are, being very prepared to have a great long form conversation. And then if it spreads or it grows or it gets really big, that takes care of itself because of your actions on a daily basis to try to be an excellent interviewer and be very prepared and ask good questions and even better follow-up questions, connect with guests, right? Get great guests. All of that is the, is, is your love of the process of preparing and doing a really good job and getting better at it each time you do it. The other stuff takes care of itself instead of saying like, all right, I got to get to number one in iTunes or whatever. No, you focus on the actually day, daily actions, the behaviors, and that's what could lead to the ultimate result that you want. And talk about this finite and infinite idea and, and how you interpret that. And I want to once again, try to really pull on that thread of a person because we all know great salespeople that are not team players there's no question there are there are amazing salespeople who they 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 even say i'll make more money as a salesperson than a manager so i'll just keep doing what i do and yeah i took a I, huge pay cut when i went to a manager for the first two years yeah so a lot of people are, are comfortable doing it they're saying hey i'm just gonna do my job i want to make money i don't want to deal with people by the way managing people is really really difficult like it's i think it's way harder to manage people than to manage clients per se i think uh, and i say people i mean people on your team obviously clients are people too but i i think there is a simplicity to i've got a product i'm selling this product it's a good product. I believe in it to all your points earlier. I'm not even selling. This is solving a problem for someone. And that's just what I do. When you take a step in a different direction and now say, all right, now I'm managing the people who are selling that project, that product, it's more complex. It's more complicated. And so I'd love to continue to riff on this because I think a lot of people that will listen to this are in that position. I know I coach people that are trying to figure out, would I rather just be on the execution side and just sell? Or would I rather just work on the business strategy or would I rather manage people and, and lead people? And so, you know, you've been there, you've done that, you've studied this. I once again would love to think about this from a finite or an infinite game type deal or, or how you even make sense of that thinking um, and would just like for you to riff on it a bit. I mean, the, the, the I think simple answer is the fact that not everybody is meant to be in a leadership position. Not everybody is meant to be in a management role. The leaders of the business should figure that out. Um, one of the problems with a lot of companies is the only path to promotion, the only path to bigger titles is to go into management. And the, 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 the better way to do it 
is to set it up so that that top performing individual contributor who doesn't want to go into management and shouldn't go into management doesn't have to or doesn't feel like compelled to interview interview for those roles and sometimes get them. Um, there are some people who just one don't want to do it. I mean, management's hard, and it, you have to make a choice to want to do it. And so as, as leaders, we should not set our businesses up to where that's the only path to promotion, set it up so that there are, there is career growth as an individual contributor. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. If every single person was dying and killing to be a, a manager, I, I don't know how well that would go. Like in a, in a way it's good that we have a diverse group of people who have different desires for what they want in their career. It's our job as leaders to, to set up our business so that they don't feel like they have to either leave the company because there's no path for them. Like you still can challenge them, give them opportunities, give them growth, make sure that they're, they're, they're properly compensated. Like all of those aspects of it needs to go into it so that the, the, the people who should be going for those roles and should be doing those jobs are doing it. And the ones who shouldn't are, are happy and fulfilled and feel like they're growing. Um, and you, you can have both. I think that's the, that's the key from a senior leadership um, position to, to build a business that way. It's really interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about this idea that you've got high performers that are focused on executing. You've got leaders who often to become a leader, you have to actually perform at a high level to get to that level. And then you have people that want to do high performance and leadership. Um, and then you have other people that get to a leadership position and say, you know what, I don't want to do the high performance anymore. Now I just am obsessed with helping other people. And so you have these different paths. And I think too often to your point, we just assume that one track fits all. And I'll give you a very tangible example in sports. Look, you're an Ohio guy. Uh, I'm in Washington, DC. The quarterback of the Washington football team this year, it, you know, was named a captain from the get-go. So sometimes people do get a captainship based on their position or based on their title or based on potential or the hopes that they can, you know, step into that captaincy. And, and he struggled and he struggled on the field. Um, and, and when you struggle on the field in sports, it's hard to still have leadership and he struggled off the field as well. And then that leads to him not being on the team anymore. And, and so it's interesting when you think about competence and you're, you have to be able to do the job, right? You have to be able to perform at a high level. And if you want to be a leader, it's more than just performing at a high level. It's also this realization that, Hey, my job is actually to make everybody else better. And we'll use the old oxygen mask analogy of like, put your mask on first, make sure you're doing a good job. Then you can put other people's masks on. Um, so I think that stuff to me is so fascinating. I love what you said about, we need to create a pathway for those that just want to perform at a high level. And it's all good. As long as you're, company has a place for them and you let them do their thing. You give them the autonomy to go perform. And that doesn't hurt your culture um, because they are maybe a lone wolf, so to speak, to use your language earlier. Um, but I, to me, this is one of the things that challenges a lot of companies and a lot of organizations because they have these high performers. And then the only way for them to get to you know, the C-suite is to go through this path of leadership. And it is interesting to think like, but what if a company was set up to just say, hey, if you want to be an executor, we're going to give you space to go do that. And so as you work with companies and you help them think about their culture and you help them think about what this looks like, how do you think about 
setting that up for each individual company? And how do you think about the process to get people to manage others or not, or whether they should or they shouldn't and, and what that looks like from, from your lens? I think it's important just to make sure people are aware of what the job is like. So one of the things I like to do is, is actually put, let's say there's a high performer who says, I want to be a manager. Um, let's, let's put them in the role. And, and, and so the, 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 the area that I would focus on is the coaching part of the job. And so in, in, in my case, I would bring in the top performer and it would, it would be awkward at times because they would be teammates with this person, but they knew what the person wanted to do. They knew that they wanted to be a manager. And so they, they, they would understand it. And this person would listen to calls and then they would, I would monitor them coaching a teammate because that was a big part of the job was having this direct specific coaching feedback. And I would, I would then grade the, the, the coach on how I felt he was doing. And I would bring others in as well to grade the coaches on how they were doing. And sometimes somebody would get done doing that exercise and we do it many times and they would say, I don't want to do this. I don't like having to criticize somebody that I like. I don't like, I, I, yeah, I would rather just, just do my job. And so it can, so whatever way you can actually put them in the job, doing the actual work of the job. And there are others, by the way, Brian, who may say, man, this is even better than I thought. Like, I love the thought of helping somebody else get better. Like I'm okay to be a little bit critical. Like I love this dynamic. So you, 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 you get kind of everything, but the, the key for me, at least was actually getting people in the role as best you can, not always possible helps when it's internal. I get it. There are, there are, there are, um, uh, keys to every part of how to do this well, but I would do my best to get people in the role doing the job, um, of the actual job that they're going to do because it's different. It's, it's again, like we talked about earlier, completely different. Uh, if you can do that, you can help give the person a sense of if they want to do it. And then me, I can, I can see, okay, I don't expect them to be awesome at it right away without a lot of experience, but you can see like, oh, okay. I, I always like to say, are they a high ceiling higher? Meaning is their upside really high? Um, because you, you see like the little nuggets of them being good at giving constructive feedback or, or getting very good with specifics um, are important to me. And so you, you could sometimes see like little glimpses of, oh, I think they have a shot to be really good at this if we work with them. I want to go into a different direction, which is we've been talking about leadership and what it's like to be a good leader in that transition. But let's go in the other direction, which is what should people do if they have a bad boss? or they, they are being managed by somebody who is not empowering them and might be stifling them. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> this is a big topic recently when I recorded with my dad and my brother, because we talked about playing for a bad coach or having a bad boss. Uh, very common question that, that usually comes over email. Hey, can you keep this between us type question? Uh, people are fearful when they have a bad boss. Um, I think I remember I talked to Dr. Henry Cloud about this as well. And it's really about um, focusing and wrapping yourself in the mission, as my dad told me when we recorded recently. And it's really about um, having a focus on what it is our mission to do being positive. It doesn't help anybody to badmouth the boss in front of your team. I did that actually when I was really young and immature, a new manager, I would just badmouth the guys. And I remember, um, 
even one of my one of my guys on my team pulled me aside he's like dude that's not a good look and i i called my dad and asked him about it and he's like what are you doing are you serious did you i go well i, th I thought it would make me more real make me more authentic and he's like no you can't bag on the boss man that's terrible uh, and, and so i learned that a, a big lesson is don't be negative um, don't focus on that person, focus on the people right in front of you on being positive of, of remember you're the emotional thermostat for your team. So if you're negative and, and you're, you're speaking ill of others, that's what they're going to see. That's what they're going to follow versus if you're, uh, upbeat, excited, you're, you understand the mission, you're focused on them. They'll, they'll, they'll act the same in turn. So I think that's one of the big ways is, is we're all going to have that from time to time. It's a part of life. It's a part of business. Um, you can't let it derail you though. You can't let it uh, make you cynical. You can't let it uh, turn you into a negative person. You can't bag on the person behind their back. None of that is helpful or useful for your team. Be the positive person they need to see, show up in a good mood, have energy, focus on them, do everything you can to help them do well. It's interesting. You have a quote in the book that I highlighted, which is compliance can be commanded, but commitment cannot. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, it's it's if 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 I have a title that's above yours, you'll comply to me because you need the job. You'll comply until you don't need the job anymore, right? You'll you'll comply in order to keep the peace. You'll comply in order to keep your job. You'll comply because you have to. Th there's a big difference in in people who want who want and choose to commit to you regardless of your title. And for me, the goal is to build committed teams where people voluntarily choose to follow you. They choose to say, I want to be attached to this guy or this team. Um, and so that's what the, 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 I wrote that earlier in the book because it, it was to say, let's focus on how do we do that? Let's focus on building a team, building a place where people becoming the type of person that others want to follow, that others want to be attached to, that others will choose every single day to be committed to. I think the same thing in my marriage. Like I want to be the type of spouse so that my wife uh, chooses to want to be married to me every single day. And so to think about how am I intentional and purposeful with my actions to where we are making the choice to want to be together, to want to be committed, right? Like that's on me to work on myself, to be that type of person. And so I think that works as a, as a spouse. I think that works in businesses. How are you working on yourself to become the type of person that others want to commit to? It's interesting. I think we're both very curious and interested in vocabulary and what phrases and used words get used. I think we both don't like the term soft skills. I started a company called strong skills to try to, to, to change that and shift that. But there's a couple of phrases that I'd love to riff on with you. One is servant leadership. And I had on a guest, Haleli Azuli and Haleli talked about how she doesn't like servant leadership and nobody should be that word servant really doesn't sit well with her. And I sort of challenged her and said, yeah, but it's just to be in service to other people. Um, but I understood what she was saying. Like, if we are a committed team, then nobody is a servant and we're all committed to each other and we're all part of something that's bigger than ourselves. So it's not actually that I'm in service to you in any way that you're not in service to me. And you even talked about if you're working for a bad boss, you want to be in service to your boss, try to help them get what they want. 
Um, and so that word is, that phrase is something that is interesting. And then buy-in is another phrase that often gets said, Hey, you need to buy into our culture. You need to buy into what we're doing. And I've always struggled with that as well. It's like in poker, you buy in and then you're competing with those people and you're putting your chips on the line. Whereas all in, it's like, Hey, we're all in this together. And it's interesting. I started with two new executives yesterday. And after our meeting, they both said, I'm all in. And they were individuals. They said, Brian, I'm all in. And there's something to that phrase all in compared to buy-in. Like, I don't need you to buy into working with me. I need you just to be all in. And, and so as I think about what you're talking about with how can we create a committed team versus a compliant team, those phrases of servant leadership or buy-in, I think they suggest almost compliance as opposed to all in or commitment. And I think the words we use are really important and essential because they set the table for how we show up with each other. So I see you nodding your head. It's not as much a question as much as I love ping ponging back and forth with you. It's fun. So I'd love to hit the ball back to you and, and get your thoughts on all that. Uh, I liked, I, I like those words. I liked kind of the poker analogy too, of, of buying in or being all in um, all in is a great metaphor for being, you know, committed to something, committed to a person, committed to an act, committed to to what you are doing on a daily basis. So I, I I like the use of those words. I like the thought of being um, committed, and and that's why we we when I was writing it, thinking of that that dichotomy, be, because it started from the good boss good boss bad boss exercise I do with teams. Sometimes like let's write all the qualities down of a bad boss. Let's start, it's very simple, but let's write them all down of a good boss. And especially you're in a room and people are writing them down and a bunch of stuff is happening and words are flying and you just kind of look at it and you're like, isn't this the person we want to be, you know? And I, and I, and I it, it sounds simplistic, but you, you, we all see the characteristics of a bad boss. If we're honest with ourselves, we're like, ah, oh, yeah, I think I did that one. I did that one. That's me from time to what time. Are, and, what are some of those Ryan that, that come up? And I'd love for you to go to good boss too. Like what are some of the things that you see when you do that exercise? Uh, okay. I can, I mean, I can picture a few people. Uh, I won't say their names. Um, they lie, they cheat. Uh, they're, uh, about themselves first. Um, huge ego. Um, they don't lead with trust. Uh, I would say those are the first handful of things I think of with a bad boss that I've actually had before that had, that had all of those qualities all wrapped up in one. It was really great. And good boss. (laughs) They lead with trust. Um, they are others focused. Um, they, they are great communicators. Uh, they understand what we're trying to do and each person's specific role in the mission and can clearly communicate to each person. They also have a bit of compassion in the fact that if you have 17 people on your team, I use that number because that's my first job you understand that you have 17 different personalities. I played, I played with a guy and I learned this in high school who was an exceptional player. Um, but his upbringing was dramatically different than mine. And he responded very differently than I did when a coach would rip him in front of his teammates and get all over him and he'd cry. And a lot of us handled that type of coaching. Fine. We could deal with it. He didn't. And to me, an excellent coach in that situation would know that that is not how you coach a guy like that. Um, he's the type of guy you pull to the side, you wrap your arm around him, and you talk him through the mistake he may have made and how to not make it again instead of ripping him. 
that's the same thing in, in business is, is, is knowing that those 17 people have 17 different life experiences and upbringings, and you have to take the time to show that you care to know about that so that you can treat them the way that, that I think can help them get to the level that they, they, they might not even think they are capable of, but a great boss can help do that. So here you are, you're podcasting, you're writing books, you have a online class, uh, you've created these circles and groups where people can sort of be in this community to learn together and grow together and share together. You are very intentional. And the podcast is called Intentional Performers because I seem to just interview people that are very intentional. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you do day to day now that you work for yourself and you have the autonomy to sleep in, to you know, eat bacon in the morning, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, walk us through what your days look like um, and, and what you do intentionally to make sure that you're at your best. Hmm. The cool thing is it's that the, the days are, um, are, are varied other than when it's a, a writing season, which it is right now for me, meaning when I agree to a book deal with a publisher and we have to turn in a, we, I have to turn in a, a man, manuscript by a certain date. So, uh, in this kind of phase is, is writing kind of takes precedent over everything. Um, so I have to block out time every day, usually early in the day in order to do that. Um, but also I'm a big physical, uh, workout person. So every day starts, um, with something that's, that's physical of some sort of workout while lifting weights, running, walking, reading, um, at the end of those workouts. Um, but, but really each of my, my days are, I try to have them broken down into four parts, which you've probably seen, um, cause I've written about it when it comes to become my, my whole goal is to become a learning machine. Um, a, a phrase uttered by um, the great Charlie Munger. Um, and for me, the way that I build my learning machine is that each day has to have four things. Um, those four things are first, I need to fuel my intake engine with knowledge and wisdom. So that would be uh, recording a podcast, reading a book, watching a TED talk, listening to a podcast, uh, fueling the intake engine. The second part of that day is that I, that I can't just be a learner. I need to also be a doer. So I need to experiment based upon what I'm learning. I need to take action based upon what I'm learning. The third thing I need to do every day is I need to take a step back. I need to reflect. I need to analyze what I've learned, analyze what I've experimented, experimented with based on what I've learned and reflect on what's going well and what's not and what should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? And fourth, and very important, especially with what you and I do, I need to spend a bit of every day being a teacher. Um, I need to share what I've learned with others because it cements what I've learned when I have to share and teach others. I have to get very clear on what I believe when I'm going to share it with other people, whether I'm writing it down for a book or I'm on a podcast like we are right now, that I have to put in deep thought in order to get clarity to teach it to someone else. And that process of preparing to teach is when so much learning takes place. And then the process of the feedback I receive after I teach is another phase of learning. And so that's why I've broken down my, my daily framework to, to try to do each of those four things every day. And that would define what a good day of becoming a learning machine is. You mentioned preparation, becoming, learning, a lot of ing, right? Like a lot of getting better, going back to that idea of being better versus being your best. 
is there a dark side to any of that? Is there a downside to this desire to be a learning machine, to keep, keep going, going, going? And yeah, I'd love to hear if the, there's any. Do you think there is? I think there is. What I, is it? What is it? I think there's a time to be. Um, like, I think, uh, look, I am very curious. I love to learn and grow. And there's a time to just be. Like we just came off what, of what, what, what's a, what's a definition of just being like, would that be watching Netflix with your wife? Uh, sure. Yeah. I think it's a good example. Like, I think there's a time to unplug. There's a time to sure. go on, go on vacation or just go for a walk, not for any intentional reason, but just to, to be um, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I think I worry. I look, I look up to, people that are so systems and so consistent. You mentioned James Clear. We could mention Tim Ferriss. We could, I, I would put you in that boat. We got connected by Alan Stein. Alan is very consistent with how he does things. I look up to all of that because I think discipline is, is massive. Jocko Willick says discipline is freedom. Like I, I, I respect the hell out of that stuff. And my concern is, is similar to my concern when we talk about grit. Um, like if we overdose on grit, I think it turns into grind. And I think people just grinding through life, they might miss these little moments that are also beautiful. And so I, like for me, I love this idea of being and becoming and, and how do we toggle that? Because if we're just always becoming, 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 perhaps we might miss the being mm -hmm. and look, I, I'm not, I, I'm no different. My, my iPhone is, is easier to look at than my five-year-old and four-year-old um, <laughs> when they're getting ready to put their pajamas on at night. It is, it is more interesting. I'm not going to sit here and lie. I love my kids. I love being a dad. But like, if I just fall into that trap of Twitter and learning and growing or a podcast, I might miss just the opportunity to, to be. And mm -hmm. so that's how I think about it. It was kind of a trap question because I do have some conviction here. Um, but you, you come off as somebody who is a learning machine. Like you have read a zillion books. You have produced a ton of podcasts. It's clear to me you are super curious. You even said, well, Brian, what do you think about that? Like it speaks to your curiosity. And I love polarity. I love this idea that too much of anything can be a bad thing and nothing of something can also be a bad thing. So those are my thoughts on it. Um, feel free to disagree because no, I, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's true. I, it's funny. Uh, my wife at times will show up to a keynote uh, with me if we want to travel and do a little uh, a, a date, a couple of days where we can get help with our kids. Um, and people will ask during the Q and a, like, is he a psychopath or crazy and just reading and doing all the stuff? She's like, what do you mean? Last night we watched the bachelor together, you know? That's actually what we did last night. Uh, we're recording on a Tuesday, right? Um, so, it, yes, I, I think for the purposes of, of this, we talk about kind of the being and the becoming and what we do that is productive. But part of what I think fuels me to be productive is, is last Wednesday at 8 o'clock in the morning, my six-year-old daughter, Charlie, got up and said she wanted to go to the park. You know, I had an 830 thing I needed to do. And what do you think happened? You know, you cancel the 830 meeting and you go to the park. 
um, with, with, with your six-year-old daughter. And that's, I think that is the, the presence. That's the being part of what you're talking about last night to sit down and watch absolutely mindless TV with your spouse, because it's funny because we enjoy seeing like the dynamics of people on a crazy reality show. We loved it. It was great. Like it was fun. I, 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 you know, like it's stupid, but it's fun, you know? And yeah, I, there are parts of me that's thinking about like, Oh, what am I going to write about tomorrow? What am, what am I going to do? But also we can get lost in that stuff and have, and have conversations. So I think you're, you're, you're really dead on Brian. I think, um, uh, especially when it comes to your family that they're, they're just, there's just, there's just nothing more important. I mean, truly there's nothing more important. So when you have the the ability to be and to be present with them, um, that that can trump everything. Um, and hopefully you can design your, your work, you can design your life, you can design your business to where you can say yes, when they want to go to the park at eight in the morning, when it doesn't really make any sense on a weekday. Um, so I, I, I try to do that. You know, that's something I learned from my parents. My dad worked really hard. He worked long hours. He traveled a lot, but he was very present, um, when, when, when he was home. And I think that's something we, we, I, I try really hard to do is to be present. Um, especially with, with my, my wife and our children. It's, it's just something I, I think a lot about because athletes, for example, are great at maximizing. Mm-hmm. They are great at saying, this is my input to get this output, to get these results. And they sort of have a formula for how to do it. And, the system of sports is set up for that. They have practice and businesses don't typically have practice. So there is a maximizing approach to sports and, and especially football, the sport that you played where I think your brother played maybe 10 years, 11, how long, how long was he in the NFL for 11 seasons? Yeah. Right. Like name a career where 11 years is a, is a, is an, is in a long, long time. Right. So in, in football, especially Pro football, that's about it. <laughs> like that, that's it. Um, so, so there is a time limit on this. And so they know they have to maximize it in this time. I'm working with a pro football player right now and his contract is, is coming up and he's like, I need to maximize right now. This is it um, to set his family up for generational wealth. And, and so maximizing is necessary at times. And I'm never going to say discipline and hard work and, uh, you know, becoming and learning is not valuable. And there's a difference between maximizing and wisdom. They're different. They're not the same. And sometimes we confuse the two to say, well, they maxed out. Okay. But maybe they weren't happy. Um, and maybe they didn't live a wise life. And I, I struggle with this and admittedly, because I'm always trying to think, all right, how can I maximize, but not at the expense, um, at the expense of the wisdom of how I want to show up and how I want to be. And that friction I think is really hard, especially for entrepreneurs who, who can do whatever they want really every day. Cause it's a blessing that you get to go to the park, um, at, at eight 30, but if you had a job that was from 10 o'clock to six o'clock every day, you would just be like, yeah, of course I can go. You're making, by saying yes to her, you're saying no to something else um, like that meeting. And that challenge is an everyday experience because from eight o'clock at night to 11 o'clock at night, instead of watching the bachelor, you could be writing and <laughs> you have to make those decisions. And it's really, really tricky. At least for me, I find those are the types of things that I struggle with, especially if you love what you do. Like it's like, it, 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 it can be addictive. So I recently posted this like vacation, for example, like if you love what you do and you enjoy doing that work, 
what is a vacation and what does it look like? And, and how do you set that up? And, and, and I just did that. I went on vacation with my family and, and broke off and did not see clients during that. What time. do you guys do? We were, we were just golfing and, and, and sort of relaxing with, with my parents. Nice. Um, Where'd you go? We, we were, we were not far. Um, we were, okay. we were close by. Well, you, well, my wife and I are on our walk last night. That was one of the things that were in deep discussions, by the way. And, and so I'm, I'm always on the lookout of like, where's the family vacation going to be? We had to cancel our vacation um, in 2020. So it's like, we're, it's time to go big this year. Well, <laughs> I think a lot of people are thinking that. You know? We're fortunate. We have a, we also have a mountain house an hour away that we can go and there's no cell service and there's oh, no Wi Fi. And, and awesome. it's one of the things that I, I, lo I love going there because I can be. And, and, and sometimes the being leads to becoming, right? Sometimes the walk in the woods leads to the next brilliant idea. Uh, before we started recording, I told you about retreats that I, I host retreats there. And that is where brilliance happens. And I get to see adults skip. Like I'll have them go on mindful walks and they just walk. And I'll watch these adults skip because... <laughs> That's what you do when you're a kid, right? You just go skipping. And um, so that's a place that we're fortunate to, and privileged to be able to go get away to. Um, and, and I think that being is, those are some of my best memories with, with my family. Um, so look, we've been riffing for a long time. What I'd like for you to do to close here is to let people know where they can find you. Um, I know you've got a book that you're working on. Uh, we certainly want people to check out Welcome to Management, where I think they can buy it on Amazon or, or wherever books are sold. Um, if they want to get involved with some of the work you're doing with these sort of classes and online programming, let's just uh, promote those things. And I'll give you a megaphone to promote anything else that you want to promote. One of the things about Ryan that I want to acknowledge is his acknowledgments in his book. Uh, I don't know if I've read a book that has had more thorough acknowledgements than Ryan's book. And I say this because when I wrote my acknowledgements in my book, it was really tricky because I was thinking, how broad do I go here? Because if I were to really go broad, it would be a list of hundreds, maybe even a thousand, because um, that's how many people I feel like have poured into me in my life. And I'm so grateful for those people. I decided to keep it a little more narrow, but Ryan, man, you went, you went broad and it was really cool to see that done in a, in a great way. And it was inspiring to me about if I do write another book, how I might acknowledge some of these people that have touched my life. And, and so feel free to shout out anything that you think deserves a shout out and certainly let people know where they can find you. Sure. Learningleader.com. Everything I do is there. If you're on your phone right now, um, you can text learners to 44222 and that's where uh, you get you get everything I do as well for free. So learningleader.com or texting learners to 44222 and you you can get get a hold of me directly. Ryan, is there is there a podcast episode with somebody who's not as well known that you have that people should check out and look like Ryan's had on, he mentioned Jim Collins, uh, Simon Sinek. We talked about Adam Grant. We talked about um, he's had on, I mean, his brother and his dad, I think are, are fascinating to listen to. I, I enjoyed those conversations. Um, he's had on a me. If you are a reader of nonfiction, the odds are he's probably had on your favorite author. Um, but who is somebody that is lesser known that people should check out? Uh, episode 78, I had Kat Cole on. Do you know Kat by chance? Just from you referencing okay. Kat. So I've referenced her a lot. Uh, Kat is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. 
she uh, was the president of Focus Brands, just left actually. Um, she's going to do, I, I think she could be the president someday. I really do. If she wants. Uh, I told her that when we recorded, we recorded f- five years ago. Um, so, and she's only gotten better in, uh, since then. Um, but, you know, incredible story. Started as a Hooters waitress, single, she, she had a single mom. She had to support her mom, support the family, you know, got her MBA before getting her undergraduate degree, opened up Hooters restaurants all over the, all over the world. Uh, her first air, airplane flight was when she was 19 to fly to Australia in order to open up a restaurant. I mean, just story after story after story. And she's just incisive. She's um, uh, so intelligent and thoughtful and kind um, and just very helpful. Um, but she was on mine. And also another episode she did of a podcast that's really good is with Patrick O'Shaughnessy um, and, and on his show, Invest Like the Best, which is, an, which is a more recent than the one I had cat on. That's, that's really good. So I would just, uh, I am, I am um, a big uh, proponent of Cat's of work and highly recommend uh, reading what she writes as well as listening when, whenever she's on a podcast. Awesome. Well, I will check that out. Uh, I'll check out Kat's episode. And I, since you, you've mentioned her before in other conversations and I, so I checked her, I think she just, she just left her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started following her since you mentioned it. So I will definitely continue to check that out. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Ryan's also on Twitter, so you can check him out there. Ryan, you practice what you preach, man. And uh, you are a learning machine and I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing all of your learning through your podcast and your book. Um, and uh, like, I think we're going to continue to have many, many more great conversations and uh, looking forward to learning from you and all that you've learned and, and grateful to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's, um, it's good to be here. I appreciate all of you, the work you put into this um, and certainly the, the, the prep you do at, uh, at shows. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The way that I build my learning machine is that each day has to have four things. Um, those four things are first, I need to fuel my intake engine with knowledge and wisdom. So that would be uh, recording a podcast, reading a book, watching a TED talk, listening to a podcast, uh, fueling the intake engine. The second part of that day is that I can't just be a learner. I need to also be a doer. So I need to experiment based upon what I'm learning. I need to take action based upon what I'm learning. The third thing I need to do every day is I need to take a step back. I need to reflect. I need to analyze what I've learned, analyze what I've experimented with based on what I've learned and reflect on what's going well and what's not and what should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? And fourth, and very important, especially with what you and I do, I need to spend a bit of every day being a teacher.